The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the chance to gather here before you under your word to hear you speak to us. Will you give us what we need, the the food that we need to nourish our souls here now from this passage? It's of a particular sort. It's about a particular type of ministry in your church. So it's in some ways aimed at some particular ones of us, but will you feed all of us with this passage and grow us all up in wisdom and in understanding of your ways and in appreciation of what you've done and how you shape and how you lead and how you build your church. So teach us, we pray this morning from this passage, Lord. Thank you. Meet us. Honor Christ. Build up his people, us. Build this church. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Hearing some odd feedback in the mic, if we can think of that in some way. In recent years, a number of evangelical churches and ministries have suffered terrible and even tragic scandals. All sorts of different things in different types of churches and denominations, but they all have some things in common. Particularly, they often have character flaws in the leadership maybe even in a key main leader. Character flaws of precisely the sort of thing we're going to look at today in 1 Peter chapter 5. An important passage, well-known one, an important passage about elders. So well-known that it is, of course, impossible to imagine that these troubled and now fallen leaders that I was alluding to were unaware of what was here or unaware of what Peter said to them and required of them. There's, There's no way they didn't know it. The problem is, they knew it, we all know this passage, but they and their churches didn't keep their, their eyes on, didn't keep a hold of it, this passage. And most importantly, they didn't keep their eyes on the true head of the church who gave these instructions, and while he also means to enable us to keep them, he is pretty clear that he holds us accountable to them. So if we look at 1 Peter 5 this morning, less than one week away from our annual congregational meeting in which we affirm new leaders, particularly new elders. We should look at this passage to learn it, to learn what's here, and also to commit ourselves to keeping our eyes on it. Both we who are elders, some of those who are elders here in this room, have been or will be, but, but also all of us, even those of us who aren't elders, to, to keep our eyes on this passage, to, to pay attention to it, and also, more importantly, to keep our eyes on the chief shepherd, who in fact is the one who is Lord over all of the flock of God. So I'm going to read the passage. This is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through the first sentence of verse 5, and then make three observations from it. Here it is. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, 
as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. 1 Peter chapter 5. So three observations. Here's the first, and it is, it's got the bulk of the material in it, and it's significantly longer than the other two if you're tracking and worried about time. We spend a lot of time in the first point. The other two are quicker. Here's the first, though. God calls elders to lead his people like Jesus. God calls elders to lead his people like Jesus. Last week we saw how God uses the various trials and hardships that come at us in life. You know, wherever they come from, however they come, unjust that they may be, things happen. People mean things to us and against us. But the point was from verse 12 and especially from verse 17 that, that God's going to use that like a refining fire to purify us, like fire purifies precious metals. Verse 17 in particular made that point. Now is the time for judgment to begin from the house of God. An allusion to the Old Testament, especially Malachi chapter 3, but also Ezekiel 9. And if you were to go read Ezekiel 9, which is a fearsome passage about the coming judgment of God, if you read that, you'd, you'd notice that it says of this judgment and those who are executing it, they began with the elders before God's house. That's the connection to our passage. With that connection on Peter's mind, that's why he begins verse 1 here of chapter 5. So, therefore, since it's the time for judgment, and since judgment begins at the house of God, and since judgment begins with the leaders at the house of God, the elders, therefore, I've got a word of exhortation for the elders to help them prepare for, to get out in front of God's judgment so that when it comes, like a fire to burn away dross, you will have already attended to yourself and there won't be much dross to burn away. I've got something for you. So this is particularly for elders, but like with a lot of stuff that's in the Bible about elders, we can also think about it and you can probably make some connections to your own particular life and positions where you are, even if not as an elder exactly. But that's the focus for this morning. Church leaders, elders, especially a word for them. And verse 2 then is that exhortation, it's the command. But before he gets there, he sets it all up in a way that models what he's about to command. I exhort you, elders, he writes, as a fellow elder. I'm one of you, not lording it over you. Though he could, he is the Apostle Peter, right? He, he could lord over, but he doesn't. I, I am I'm an elder like you. He takes the lowly path here, not out of some sense of false humility. Think about this just a little bit. It's not his main point, but, it, but it is a, it's a setup. It's an important contribution to this. He takes the lowly path here, 
not out of false humility, but because, in fact, there is a lowly path to walk that he is, in fact, on. He's an apostle, but he's just a guy, like all of us, just humans. And he really wants us to get that. We really keep that in mind about ourselves, about all of our leaders. He wants to be clear about that. Watch what he does here. I'm a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, which could be, some think it is, it could be a, a statement emphasizing his job, like the elder's job, to be a witness about the sufferings of Christ. But I, I think he's more mean to lean into I'm a witness, and witnesses are people who talk about what they've seen. And as soon as Peter says that, everybody right away remembers how it is that Peter saw the sufferings of Christ. When Paul says, I'm a, a witness of the resurrected Jesus, we think of the Damascus Road. When Peter says, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ, we cannot help but remember that was not Peter's shining moment. When the sufferings of Christ were going on, where was Peter? Safely at a distance, shrinking back in fear. He saw the sufferings of Christ from a distance, and everybody knows that the Bible records it, and Peter brings it up here, alludes to it. Pointing out Christ, Christ's sufferings are, are the foremost thing here, what they are, what they're about. He's intended to remind us of that. That's, that's central, but he reminds us in a way that also shines a light on his own clay feet. I'm a witness to Christ's sufferings pretty imperfectly, but that's what I am. You all know that. And here's what else I am. I am also a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. I remember my failure and I see my glory. Not glory that is mine now. Not the glory that comes from being a key top apostle. The glory that is going to come to me when Christ comes. Then, at that point, then I'm a partaker in that glory. Not yet. Right now I'm an elder just like you, with feet of clay just like you, not in glory yet, but looking forward to it just like you. And so let me tell you something, me to you, elders. And you kind of move towards that and you kind of get the feeling that I bet he's told himself this once or twice. And in fact, Jesus told him this also. Because after the falling, remember the restoration of, of Peter after the resurrection? When Jesus asked him, do you love me? He answered him three times, and he used the verb here once. And he said something very similar all three times. Peter's heard this before, not just from his own voice, but he's heard it from Jesus himself. And this is what he has to exhort the elders with. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight. The command is to shepherd. Clarified by the phrase, exercising oversight. Shepherding, then, is about everything shepherds would do as they, as they looked over a flock of sheep. And to translate that into the church, then, it, it means that shepherds bring the sheep of God, the people of God, to what they need for food. They, they make sure that they find good food, the Bible, 
proper doctrine, a true and deep and rich understanding of the gospel, and they make sure they can take it in well. That they, they take it in in faith. They, they feed on it, and it is applied well to them, and, and it leads to their healing and to their living well and to their service. And elders help bind up wounds if they should come. They, they protect from attacks and adversaries like deception and false doctrine, division, gossip, attacks of those sorts. And they give guidance and, self, and safeguard, and it's needed for an organization like this that exists in a place like this. It's benevolent and gracious and merciful control, rule. Benevolent and gracious and merciful oversight, exercised. That's an acting out of something. It is a real authority given by God to the shepherds to the elders of the flock. But it's not an ultimate authority, of course. It, it, this flock is God's. It's the flock of God. It belongs to him. He's the one who owns it. And he places some of his great big flock, some of it, around some particular elders in some particular place. So it's, it's got a range of responsibility and has an authority that only comes into, into that range. And it's... It's a fact that we all should be aware of and keep in mind that there are, I mean, right now at this very moment, there are Christians, there are other sheep of this flock who are meeting at Gospel Grace downtown. And I have no authority over them whatsoever. No responsibility for them whatsoever. Nor they any to me. It's shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So we should keep that in mind, and it kind of helps us understand and maybe corrects us. God's plan is always, I've got a big flock that is subdivided into little flocks over, whom, over which I put elders. There are no flockless sheep. And there are no multi-flock sheep that rotate between flocks and elders week by week or month by month. So the authority and the responsibility is, is within one sphere, if you will, and, and everybody in the flock and everybody over the flock knows who's who. That, that's, that's the setup here. I have just a tad more to say about that when we talk about verse 5. But that's the basic command. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Then one's right there. Exercising oversight. That's the exhortation. But kind of a, the heart of it really lies in what comes up next, the, the how that's in verses 2 and 3. It's three pairings, shepherd the flock like this, not like that, like this, not like that, three times. And each of these three touch on some very common sins, some very common pitfalls that elders and pastors, who of course are elders, often struggle with. This is kind of the heart of the passage. Middle of verse 2. Shepherd, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, like God wants you to. Not forced, shepherd. Not because you felt you had to say yes when the nomination letter came because you said no last time. 
Not because somebody's going to do it and I guess it's my turn. Not because I have a reputation of being a leader that I have to uphold. 1 Timothy 3 says that if anyone aspires to the office of elder, he desires a noble task. You have to want to. You have to desire it, to aspire to it. And the reason that matters is that it keeps one from the common problem of sloth, of grudging service like that of a hired hand. Serving as an elder is often hard work and often a kind of a collective pain. There's a whole bunch of elder-type stuff that is just kind of not what you would probably choose to do with this hour or that weekend. And it comes up all the time. And serving as an elder then is, is challenging in some ways, and God wants it to be done willingly with zeal, or you just won't do it well. That's, that's the case. You tend to avoid the things that are hard or to dodge the stuff that's repetitive and frustrating. Now, I am... I've been an elder for a long time, and I, I am all in favor of dodging the repetitive stuff that's not important. I'm all in favor of dodging the stuff that should be done away with. There are lots of things that kind of just carry on by tradition. That, so we don't do everything, but what I'm pointing out is that it's easy to dodge the stuff that's repetitive and necessary, that's hard and necessary. If all you're doing is the bare minimum, it's easy to let stuff slide and sloth sets in. God wants this work done willingly with a sense of zeal because of what it is and who it is. It's God's people. Willingly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. The second pairing. If the previous pairing is about sloth or abdication of responsibility, then this one is about the potential for greed and self-gain. If you were here when we preached through 2 Corinthians, we heard this a lot. Paul faced this a lot in Corinth. There were some men there who were among the, the leaders of that church, who were trying to be among the leaders of the church, who were ministers there, and they were in it for gain. They were there. That's always been a problem throughout every age, church leaders that in some way or another are in the ministry because they realize they can make a buck at it or they can make a name for themselves at it. Some way there's something in it for them. That's why they're there. That's shameful gain. Which isn't to say that there is no gain at all in the ministry. It's permissible, and Paul will point out that it is permissible, and it's even right that we pay our ministers, our pastors and ministers, if we can. And ironically, in a few minutes, Peter's going to talk about and use it as a specific motivation. He's going to use it specifically to motivate. He's going to use a sense of personal gain, but personal gain that is of immense eternal nature. There is indeed gain in ministry, but Peter's laying his finger on here is shameful gain, which, given that it is set opposite to eagerly, you see shameful gain, but eagerly, 
It seems to mean shameful gain is shameful because it's the motivating factor that gets someone to serve. He's not eager to serve until he figures out there's something in it for him. He doesn't love the sheep. He doesn't love the church. He doesn't love the work. He doesn't love the Lord. He loves the gain. That's greed. That's self-focus. That's shameful gain. It's destructive to the soul and it's fatal to ministry, to any sort of effort to serve as a shepherd. I think it was D.A. Carson that, that said about the, the topic of paying pastors and, and said, kind of riffing off of this statement perhaps, pastors who are serving, and you could say for elders who are serving like God means, should do it with the attitude, I would do this for free if I could. And then he said, and churches should pay pastors with the attitude of, we'd give you all the money in the world if we could. Of course, he can't, and they can't, but he's getting at the attitude of eagerly. I, I see what's here. I see the job. I see the people. I see the Lord. I see, and, and if I could, I would do this for free. What Peter is putting his finger on saying, that's the problem you have to watch for, is the one who says, I'm not going to do this until you tell me, like, what's, what's it pay? In, in cash or in reputation, in power, in prestige. What, what, what's in it for me? It, oh, okay, then I'm in. That's the problem. Not greedy for gain, not longing for what's in it for me, but who dives in eagerly, who does it from a desire to have it done for the sake of the Lord and for his people. So not slothful and reluctant. Not willing to do it as long as there's profit. That's, that's very destructive. But I think those two probably pale in comparison to the seriousness of the third one. Because this one so easily turns oppressive. The third pairing, verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. Not domineering, as in not lording over. A desire for power to rule and to control and even to use those under one's authority. This is grievous to God and to the church. It is so unlike the suffering servant. The suffering servant came to lay down his life for the sheep not to crush them or proudly use them to advance himself. The abuse of power seen in too many spiritual leaders leaves a deep scar. Of the three, uh, th this, one's, this one's tricky, right? Because there's a tension built in. There, there's exercise oversight, and don't be domineering. There's, there's a given authority that, that is very real. And it's easily abused given our fallen natures. And so if we want to like push against that, what do we talk about? Well, we, we could talk about and we should talk about checks and balances and divided and shared authority and accountability and transparency. 
all of which is helpful. And probably in every one of those cases where I mentioned the, the, the fallen leaders and the problems of churches, you could probably look back and say, half that's on the church. Half that's on the ministry. And often, the lawsuits that follow are making that very point. Yeah, that guy did, and you all knew and didn't do anything about it. Of the three, this one's different than the previous two in that if, if a person is greedy for gain, you might not see it in their heart. If the person is kind of like reluctant, you might not see that. But if the person is domineering and abusive, that shows up. And the problem is, this needs to be understood not only by the one who would be the elder, but those who would be around the elders. Because when they see it, they have to say, whoa, 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 whoa. And lots of times, the church doesn't. Because that kind of leader is getting, let's say, results. That kind of a, a driving personality, man, it, like, it does stuff. Stuff happens. Things seem to be moving. Ministry is advancing. And people say, like, he's really, 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 really hard on that person. It seems maybe domineering, but it's getting some results, so I guess it must be of the Lord. No, it is not. Of the three, this one is most ugly and most destructive because of what it does to other people. And so the elders need to be warned against this. And the church needs to be warned against this. It's the thing you can see and you can stop. So we could talk about that, just did, and probably should. However, in the end, what is best, I think, is to note what Peter does with it. Peter does not move to talk about accountability instructions and whatnot. Peter moves to the flip side, to the positive, and says but be an example to the flock. Like he modeled for us already in verse 1. Be an example of what clay-footed, fallen, gospel-believing, forgiven, future glory-aspiring, Authority under authority, looks like. Shepherd, model that. Don't model what the glory of God and power and might looks like. That's not your job. That's not your job. Your job is to model clay-footed, fallen, gospel-believing, forgiven, future glory aspiring, authority under authority. That's what you're supposed to be an example of. A shepherd who knows he is in need of a shepherd himself because he remains in touch with his own fallen weakness and humanity. Shepherds who look not for glory which they can make for themselves or extract from the flock, but a glory that will one day be given. Who live for that and believe it is real. And therefore, 
are willing and eager to give themselves away. Not seeking to get, but to give, to lay down their lives for the sake of the sheep. This is how elders, pastors and ministers, must shepherd God's flock. In other words, like Christ himself, the great shepherd. Like Christ in character and Christ in behavior. By looking to Christ for strength and hope, they can. That's going to lead us to our second observation in a second. But before we go there, we should pause right here and take a second, especially if you are an elder or maybe an elder one day, you look back over these three people, please look back over those three pairings and just ask, Lord, question mark, Others of us, I mean, if you're not an elder, but you're a ministry leader, maybe you're a shepherd of a family, if you're a parent or if you're a husband, you, you can apply this in other ways. So just maybe go back through those three pairings and say, Lord, question mark. And when I do that for myself, boom. I mean, it does not take, but I, I don't even finish the sentence before I know which one of those is my weakness. Which one of those I'm prone to. I, I know right away which it is. Do you? Not about me, but about you. <laughs> Do you know about you? And maybe repentance is in order. But after repentance, you want to say, like, I want to, but I want to walk better in that. So how? Help. Well, this is the second point then. God calls elders to lead his people, not just like Jesus but by looking to Jesus. God calls elders to lead his people by looking to Jesus. So we see and probably pretty clearly understand the type of leadership that God's commanding here. We get the what, but then the how. That's the question that always comes up, and we should always be thinking. This is just kind of an aside here about always as you're reading the Bible, you should always be thinking, how? Because the how cannot be because he said so. So, there's, there's got to be something more there. This is a great example to see how God always helps us to keep his commands. How he moves us, how he means to move us to follow his decrees. So you got one through three, basically the command, and then verse four is the help. He always talks to us like this. Here's the command, and he wants us to live by faith. You hear that often about the Christian life, you live by faith. Christian life is the life of living by faith. Faith in what? Well, faith is forward-looking. Here's the commands, and I want you to live by faith. Do that trusting me with what I promise. Promises are about the future. That's exactly right here. One through three is the command. How do I do that? By faith, trusting me with what I promise in verse four. Shepherd the flock, one through three, verse four. And when the chief shepherd appears, not now, not here in this life, in this life, you may have trouble, and that may be just a lot of work, and it may be difficult and challenging, and it may never go well. But when Christ returns, 
you will receive from his hand the unfading crown of glory, I promise. There's the command. Live doing that, trusting, I promise, the future. You will receive the unfading crown of glory when Christ returns. And the shepherd looks over your shepherding and says, here, a crown, which is not maybe like we think of often kings. It, it's a crown as in like a laurel wreath or maybe like a, a thin gold band that, that was given to champions of races and competitions. So maybe for us it might be helpful to think about like an Olympic Games medal ceremony of a team sport where there's not just an individual, but there's a whole, a whole winning team is on the, on the winner's platform. All the members are there, not just an individual. And we receive the unfading crown, or the unfading gold medal of glory. All elders who shepherd like this all get the crown. But not everybody gets it. This is not about getting to heaven. Every Christian gets to heaven. That's been settled by Christ's death on the cross and by the Christian's faith in him. So all Christians are getting to heaven. This is about something else, some particular sort of blessing given to Christians who served as elders. We're serving in a particular way. And if you're not an elder, there are, there are other ministries assigned to you and other rewards God will give to you. This is important to keep in mind, but not what this is about. This is about discharging a particular type of ministry he assigned to you, elders shepherding in the church. God the Son will crown you in some way, in some sense, with a crown of unfading glory, which seems to say that this crown won't vanish or go away. The light and momentary troubles and afflictions that you willingly and eagerly embrace now, they will fade away. The focus, the being the focus of persecution, the focus of spiritual attack, maybe the mental or the, the physical fatigue you will face, that's all going to fade away. There's going to be a moment when there is no more. But here's an honor promised to you, promised that you will receive from the Lord himself that won't end. You will bear a particular honor for eternity. Others of us, keep this in mind too, about the other applications of it in other ways. If you're called to be a parent or a father, if you're called to be a ministry lead of something, there are other rewards for others of us. So you can kind of think about this for yourself too. But I'm trying to focus particularly on elders because of the importance this is in this passage and the importance it is for the church. Elder, you will bear a particular honor for eternity. Or you won't. In heaven, maybe you won't have this unfading crown of glory. Now, there are no eternal sorrows or eternal tears in heaven, but there is an awareness, a knowledge of what was. And we need to be clear about this. To think, 
I was a minister of God's flock. God made me an elder, a, an under-shepherd of his over God's flock, and I don't have one of those crowns now. Because the way I engaged in that work, it all burned up like so much wood, hay, and stubble. That's from 1 Corinthians, where Paul is talking about laborers, ministers, in the church, particularly that's his focus there, who built the church with so much wood, hay, and stubble. And when the fire came along, whew, gone. In heaven, and I am, I am blessed to be here. I am blessed beyond all measure to live in the kingdom of God. It is glorious, it is beautiful. But I know I lived a pretty short-sighted ministry life. I blew it. Paul and Peter says that's going to be the case for some. You don't want that. So keep your eyes on Jesus who is coming and who promises you all that you will ever want and need when he comes in the future. Who promises you that life is found in him not in his sheep or in what they give you or in the position that they put you in among them. Life is found in him and he is enough. Do you see his sufferings and do you see what they're about? The truth of the gospel and the forgiveness of your sin the giving of his spirit of glory that rests upon you like we talked about last week, the spirit of glory that rests upon you and brings him into communion with you now and gives you power to embrace all that he calls you to, his presence that sustains you and empowers you, his promises for you for the future, hope in that Jesus, elder. His forgiveness and his mercy, his grace and his glory and his power. That's what frees you to give all that you are away and frees you from the bent to make a life for yourself from all the resources that are at hand. Ultimately, that's the only bulwark against the abuse of power is a hope in something else, somewhere else, coming from someone else. That's what makes you willing to spend and be spent for the sheep and for him. So look to Jesus, elder, minister, and all of us who are in some sense lowercase m ministers. That's all of us. I'm talking particularly about elders here, but I think there are ways we can apply this to all of us as we look forward to God saying to us all, well done, good and faithful servant, and in some sense giving us honor or not. Look to him. That's how he empowers us to keep his commands. Trust him. Shepherd the flock of God by looking to Jesus. And then lastly, it's the third observation, which is pretty straightforward. People of God, different than elders, people of God, be subject to the elders of your church. People of God, be subject to to the elders of your church. I'm just restating the first sentence of verse 5. It begins, likewise, indicating that this is the opposite pairing of the first several verses. Some have thought, because he mentions younger, and it shouldn't be just younger men, younger people, because he mentions younger, that the elders that are mentioned there in verse 5 must be elderly people. 
That's not the case. The, the likewise, the pairing of likewise means he's just he's telling the opposite side of the story now. So younger people, likewise, be subject to those elders I was just talking about. Specifically addressing younger adults, not, not kids. Younger adults, men and women both. Not because older adults don't need to be subject to the elders, but probably because older adults don't need to be told to be subject to the elders. Older ones, probably Christians and in the church for a longer period of time, are more likely to hear all that God says about elders and leadership and know, know more and hear more and get it and cooperate with it, generally speaking. Generally speaking. And again, generally speaking, younger adults are usually the stripe of society where you find the most hotheads. Today, we nearly idolize youth, and we all want to pretend that we are young. So it's maybe a bit odd and kind of hard, maybe even a bit insulting to kind of realize that most societies for most of history have not thought very much of young people. Because they've noticed that young people tend to have more zeal without knowledge. More zeal without wisdom and without experience and are more inclined to get frustrated with older ways and be quick to want to break off and do things their own way. Younger people, younger adults I'm talking about, are more often, more readily eager to become authorities unto themselves. Generally speaking. So that's the group that needs to be reminded. Very briefly, it's just one sentence. Quick, right? Just one sentence. But reminded, in a command, if God gave someone to be in charge, to exercise oversight, and if you're not among them, then that means that God calls you to obey them. We could say more about that, of course, and we would need to. If we were going to get more into that, we could say things like, well, unless they command something sinful, absolutely, yes. Or if, unless they, you know, they go off the rails and, and they abuse one of these various principles, here, yes, for sure. And if leadership violates you know, verses 1 through 3 in some way, at, at some point, that does make it permissible to leave a church and submit oneself to some other elder somewhere else. That, that's all true. But if you're a Christian, you're either, if you're a Christian, you're either subject to Christ as an elder or subject to Christ by being subject to Christ's elders. There's no third category of subject to Christ independent of elders. Doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. Young adults and all adults need to hear this. And Peter doesn't hammer on this. So I'm not trying to hammer this. I'm just trying to point out. He says this. And, and again, you could kind of think about Peter. When Peter was younger, he was a ready, fire, aim sort of guy, right? And he, he kind of says, hold on a second. Be subject to the elders, everybody, including the younger people. Because that's how God set up the leadership of his flock. For all of our good, so that we all might be equipped to walk in righteousness 
and represent Christ to the world, show off how Jesus actually is, and then one day when he comes, partake in his glory that he brings when he comes for us. Elders shepherd the flock like Jesus by looking to Jesus, and the flock then submits to elders, and we see Christ in his church. Let me pray. Father, help us. These things are difficult in some ways because they call us out of ourselves and call us to live both as, as leaders and as followers in ways that aren't always natural for us. So help, please. Would you help primarily, first and foremost, by being the one who shepherds our souls, by being the, the Lord who shines over us and who draws our attention and makes us all realize that in the end we're all just people. Clay feet, problems and sins, forgiven, looking forward to the day when you come and give us glory. That's who we are. Help us to see that and believe it about all of us. Thank you, Lord, for your church. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.